0: We love hot chocolate in the winter. We love the beach in the summer. We love our parents and kids. And we love God. Those things aren't all the same, are they? The word love is a very tired word because it's been used over and over and over again for so many different things. In the English language, we're kind of limited. Most languages have different words expressing different types of love. In the English language, we only have one. and That's why we're going to talk today about four different types of love. We're following C.S. Lewis's outline in his famous book, The Four Loves. This is something that no doubt you've probably heard before, but a refreshing is always good. And the reason a refreshing is good in the context, in the last couple of weeks of what we've discussed, as we talked about the atonement, And last week I talked about different perspectives on the atonement. And I made the point that the reconciliation perspective is the most helpful for the current generation we live in, a generation uh, that needs a palatable message that's biblical. And the idea of God reconciling man to himself, reconciling the broken relationship, this is a message of love. So like never before, for people who are hostile to God maybe some of us in this room who have hostile feelings towards God, the message God loves you is needed more than ever before. It needs to be emphasized, it needs to be told, it needs to be nurtured, it needs to be given. But the problem is, is that sometimes the filter of God loves you goes through other filters that changes the meaning of it. So I thought it would be good for us to talk about it. You know, we we say all the time, Love you, love you, bud, love you, pal. Uh, the word love has lost its punch. The word love has kind of lost its power. And I think that we're limited simply because of the limitations of the language that all of us primarily use, or most of us, the English language. There's four types of love. Here's the first one I want to talk to you about affirmation. And the Greek word for this, there, there's, there's four Greek words, is Storge. The G is hard. Storge, affection, affection. This is a very common type of love. It's one of the natural loves. And in a couple of minutes, we'll look at Matthew chapter 23 uh, to see a little insight into Jesus and his love for something that is a little bit detached. We, we, we have love for... We use the word love, I think, to show a comparison that we like something better than we like something else. So I, I like Panda Express, it's pretty good. I really, you know, I like also Fulans, but I really, really like P.F. Chang's. I only go there occasionally, and it's kind of a big deal. So. In the English language, we don't have a great way to say, well, even though I like Panda Express and I like Foodlands, I really like P.F. Chang's. So we say, I love P.F. Chang's. As if these romantic feelings come when we smell the soy sauce. I like big cities. There's no big city like Nashville, right? Nashville's the greatest, but of cities that we occasionally visit. I like Chicago. I like going there. I like Denver. I like Dallas. I love or I really like New York. And because I really like New York, because it's different, I say, I love New York. I love visiting New York. I love New York. If I would have thought about that 40 years ago or 30 years ago uh, and trademarked the phrase I love New York, I'd be rich right now, right? But what we're saying there is we have a preference. We like one thing over the other. Whether it's a sports team, whether it's a musician, we use the word love to denote our preference or denote something that we like better than something else. It is possible to love an institution. It's possible to love a place. It's possible to love an expression of culture. And Jesus, even though more is going on here than simply our limited affection, Jesus in Matthew 23, 37 said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how I often I long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. We we get this idea here that Jesus even loved the city of Jerusalem, and we know He loves all cities. So, I'm not here for corrective language. Like I don't want you to be paranoid today when you talk about loving your mill or loving your sports team as if it's wrong to do that. I'm not trying to correct this in the least. All I'm saying is I'm pointing out a weakness of our language that what we sometimes look as simple affection or liking something better than the other, we use for the word love. Now, here's where the problem comes spiritually. The problem comes when we say, God loves you. We really think the message is, God likes me better than somebody else. God prefers me over someone else. And that brings pride into our lives. In addition to that, in addition to the pride, then if we encounter someone who we may think is more talented or has more advantages than us, then we may think, well, God loves them better. And here's the truth, God loves all people equally. I know you agree with me, but I don't know if we really believe that. God really loves all people equally. Even his special chosen people, the Jewish people, do you know that he loves he doesn't love the Jewish people any more than he loves any other group of people. He's chosen them and they have a special assignment and it's okay to honor that and a great a great metaphor for that is a pregnant woman. We don't love a pregnant woman more than we do another human being, but we treat a pregnant woman with special care. We give her special consideration because there's there's life within her. So so it is so it is with The Jewish people, that they're not loved more than any other people, more than the Irish people, the Palestinian people, the Arab people. They're not loved anymore, but they're treated with special care. God loves all people equally. And he loves all of us equally. And so this idea of just affection that there's a preference over the other is an incomplete definition. I know it's amazing to me what a boy will do to impress a girl. It's amazing how guys show off. I went to a small college in Kansas City area, and there was probably about five to 700 of us who lived on campus. The rest of the student population were commuters and, and adult students. So we all get to know each other pretty good. And in that kind of traditional college setup, there were 8 a.m. classes. And in the dorm, uh, when did you wake up for an 8 a.m. class if you were a dude? About 7.52. And he kind of rolled out of bed and with one motion, just whatever pair of jeans were on the floor, just threw them on in one, one motion. And the idea of ironing or bathing or brushing the teeth, no way. Throw the cap on, go to class in a coma with sleepy in your eyes. And then you arrive at 759 and 30 seconds and then kind of Nap through the class, right? Is this not a normal college experience? Isn't American higher education just wonderful, right? And people are taking out loans for that, all right? I would always know things had changed when one of these same guys, one of these same young men, actually set the alarm clock, woke up early, and get this they took a shower and brushed their teeth and combed their hair for the 8 a.m. class. Why did they do this? Was it because they were excited about English comp? No way. There was a pretty girl they had identified. And that changed everything. You know, guys, their behavior completely changes when they're trying to show off. This is the second kind of love I want to highlight. The word romance. The Greek word is eros. We get the word erotic from that. This sense of romance. And at this point, usually preachers uh, try to act like romance isn't really that important. But romance is very important. And romance comes from God. I think the reason a lot of teachers and preachers speak against this is because our culture idolizes romance maybe to a place that's higher than it should be. But we have to remember that God is the one who invented romance. And he did it for a particular reason. And before we unfold that a little bit more, I wanted to read a story in Genesis chapter 29 of when Jacob met his wife Rachel and how he kind of showed off because of this romantic love. And then Jacob continued on his journey and went to the eastern country. He looked and saw a well in a field. Three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it because the sheep were watered from his well. Now look at this part. Remember this part. A large stone covered the opening of the well. Reading on, we find out when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the opening of the well. How many noticed there it's not the shepherd, the shepherds? Large stone and the shepherds would roll the stone from the opening of the well. The stone was then placed back in the well's opening. Jacob asked the men, At the well, my brothers, where are you from? And now we get some kind of small talk. We're from Haran. This is giving us context. And he asks about his uncle. And then at the bottom it says, and here is his daughter, Rachel. All right, this is where everything changes, okay? Then Jacob said, look, it is still broad daylight. It's not time for the animals to be gathered. Water the flock, then go out and let them graze. But they replied, we can't until all the flocks have been gathered. Go on to the next slide. And the and the stone is rolled from the well's opening. Now remember, this is a big stone. The shepherds rolled the stone. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. As soon as Jacob saw his uncle Laban's daughter, Rachel, with his sheep, he went up and rolled the stone from the opening and watered the uncle, his uncle Laban's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept loudly. So you know what happened? This guy was showing off. I mean, it took the shepherds to move the big stone, but then when he saw the woman he loved, he did it all by himself. Do you know romantic love that social scientists have shown us that it releases endorphins in our minds that literally uh, make us feel like we're on drugs? That's the power of it. And out of context, this can be very dangerous. It can be very damaging. But I, I want... You need to see that God designed this and he designed it for our goods. Because when we're in God's boundaries and we're creating romantic, emotional bonds with our spouse, that emotional bond is there for us when tough times come. And when eras come in our marriage, our days come in the week, our challenges come, the romantic bonds we have are part of what God has done to emotionally bond us to our spouse so that we can get through difficult periods of time. And that's why this is important. I think that it's a dangerous and an erroneous belief to think that, oh, just because we're Christians, we don't need to be romantic and we don't need to pursue romance. There are times in everyone's marriage, I would suppose that, you know, things don't feel as romantic as other times. And maybe you're in an era like that right now where it just feels so practical. It just feels so normal. Your marriage doesn't feel romantic. I believe I have a word from the Lord for you. The word from the Lord on God, Lord our God on high is this. Fix it. Do something about it. Pursue your spouse. Don't wait for them. You do what you're supposed to do. And you know, there there have been times in my marriage that I was not pursuing Beth, and I truly regret that, truly regret that. Fix it, do what you're supposed to do because God is using those romantic bonds and he's using those very important emotions as part of your marriage story. Maybe to prepare you for a time, or simply for your enjoyment, simply as a gift from him simply as something he wants you to do. In our society, an underrated, underestimated type of love is the love we have as friends. This is number three, the friendship love, phileo. This is a natural love. And I love the story, one of my favorite characters in the Bible is Jonathan. Jonathan, who was the very talented son of Saul, a man who had all types of talents and abilities, and he surrendered those abilities, and he laid down those abilities because he saw that the hand of God was on David to be king. He laid down his right to be king for his friend. I identify with him as I I served a man of God for nine years in a second place position, and I tried to do everything in my power to honor him and to serve him. And so I was able to identify with Jonathan many times. Jonathan, in 1 Samuel chapter 18, we find the story in the message paraphrase. It says, by the time David had finished reporting to Saul, Jonathan was deeply impressed with David. An immediate bond was forged between them. He became totally committed to David. From that point on, he would be David's number one advocate and friend. Saul received David into his own household that day, no more to return to the home of his father. And Jonathan, Jonathan, out of his deep love for David, made a covenant with him. He formalized it with solemn gifts, his own royal robe and weapons, armor, sword, bow, and belt. Jonathan gave over his authority. He gave over his right to honor his friend. This is this is a, an example of a phileo type of love that we can have for friends. And I understand that friends quickly become family when this happens. And listen, I, of all the things that I've accomplished in life, I, and you may not be impressed with what I've accomplished, but the very fact that people are listening to me preach this morning, I, I'm pretty much, thank you, Lord. How, how in the world did this happen? And of all the different things that I've accomplished, I believe the most important thing has been the friendships that I've developed. The friendships I've developed along the way. I'm still friends with um, people I went to high school with. In the last 14 days, I've had significant conversations with uh, two of my friends I went to high school with. I'm still friends with people I went to college with. I'm friends with uh, people who used to be in my youth group who are now adults. And I had a long span as a youth pastor part, as kind of an associate youth pastor. And, and another time, a couple of other churches as a youth pastor. And some of those, those students now are adults and they have kids. And those friendships are awesome and incredible. In fact, the first service we had about a dozen hands go up. I don't know if there will be any here or how many. If you were in, my, in the youth group I was part of when I was a junior high or high school pastor, just raise your hand if there's people in here. So there's one back here and one over here, one over here. So that's cool. That's a cool thing. And I know that there's also parents of of kids who have been in my youth group. And I love that. I mean, once a youth pastor, always a youth pastor. And those friendships are priceless. Um, Friendships with teammates when I played sports. Friendships with coworkers that I've served with at other churches. I have a wide network of friendships with uh, pastors and other colleagues that I've made. And I'm going to tell you, that's what life is about. Man, when this is all over, this is all we're going to have in heaven is our friendships. That, that's, you know, people aren't going to remember the stuff that preoccupies our mind. The relationships are, are what really matters. For the last 18 years, Beth Allison's been my best friend. And that friendship has meant everything to me. And now I see my son Lincoln sitting next to her my other two kids are sitting in that same row, the first service, and my friendship with, with Abby and Luke and Lincoln is awesome. I mean, it's, we, we uh, follow sports together. We follow politics together, even though our whole family, we have different candidates we like. Uh, we travel together, and that's what life's all about. It's that phileo friendship, that deep bond, the deep type of friendship. Every one of the loves I've already mentioned our natural loves. They're loves that are available for any human being. Any human being can have these loves and experience the, these types of loves. But they all have limitations. Because see, all of the different things that we love, all of the cultural things we love, our sports teams, our, our political parties, our musicians that we follow, Our TV shows, I'm like, I love this TV show. I just can't wait till next Thursday or next Monday because I got to see that show. I got to set the DVR. All those things are so fleeting, aren't they? I mean, they come and they go. The stuff that we loved 20 years ago, we are laughing about now. The stuff we care about in culture that we we give our affection to, we give our preference to, uh, these things are fleeting. They come and they go. Romantic love isn't eternal either. Because we know, I know many of you have been the victims of divorce and you've felt that pain. Some of you who are single have, you know, been through some tough break, breakups and, and it's been really hard and, and so hard that maybe only God understands how deep that's been. Even in the, the best case scenario, best case scenario that a couple does everything right. I mean, they follow God and they live a long time. One of them will go to heaven before the other. So even when romantic love is done well and honors God, there's limitations to that. And we've been through that here in in our church where we've seen couples who have been together for decades and, and then one passes away and then the other is now either a widow or a widower. And the pain of that is tough, it's hard. And it lets us know that we can't put our hope in romantic love. We can't put our hope in Eros. And then one of the biggest disappointments of life to me has been how friendships end. I mean, friendships just end. I, I hold on to friendships probably way too long, I guess, as I'm getting older and wiser, but of, of that whole list of all these different people from different categories that I'm still friends with, there's an equal list of people that the friendships have just ended. Sometimes they've just faded away. Uh, sometimes you've just kind of been dropped by people. Sometimes things just change. And, and I think to me, I think heaven's going to be so wonderful, because I think there's going to be a restoration of friendships, that everyone we were once close with, God's going to restore those things. Uh, sometimes friendships end just because of the reasons I already mentioned, sometimes there's an event, and there's something negative that's happened. And, and, and that's really hard, that's disappointing. Um, that, that's one of the things about life that makes us realize our frailty and our need for God is because we can't put our hope in friendships. I can't put my hope in my kids. Because as much as I love going on vacation and hanging out with them, I know that there's going to be a time in life where it's probably not going to be healthy for them to do every vacation with me. It's probably not going to be healthy for them to do leisure things with me because they need to go, and they, they need to start their own life. And if God blesses them with spouse, spouses, they need to bond with those spouses and they need to have time away from us. And so, so um, that relationship is is limited also. As much as it feels good and noble to say, it's all about the kids, it feels good to say that. It's all about the kids, but it can't be all about the kids because we can't put our hope in our kids. That's not fair to them and it's not healthy for us. Sounding really depressing, isn't it? But it's not because the reason you're here this morning and the reason we're here and the reason we worship is this unbelievable God who has the last love, unconditional love. Phileo love. Excuse me, agape love. Unconditional love. The Greek word is agape. A supernatural love. Unfortunately, we've been programmed to believe that when they say that God loves us, that we think, that means just God thinks I'm really cool, or God thinks I'm really charming, or, or God thinks that I have this great personality. And it's much deeper than that. Because the love of God doesn't mean that God never disapproves of us because we do things that God disapproves. The love of God doesn't mean that God's never disappointed with us because no doubt we disappoint God with our weakness and with our bad choices. The love of God doesn't mean God's ever even angry with us because he's angry about the sin in our life. But the love of God means this, is that God always loves us. Always, always, always. He never stops loving us. There's no limit to his love. And it's not about him liking us more than one other person because of some behavior modification. Or because we're just getting some stuff together in our life. And it's not this kind of temporary, erotic love. And and it's, it's not this sense of friendship that can come and go. It's this stable, supernatural, eternal love. And we spend our whole Christian walk trying to grasp that love. And I don't think we ever do grasp it. And that's one of the beautiful things about following the Lord, is you can think about His love, analyze His love, you, you can desire his love and you never fully get it. And I think he does that for a distinct purpose. If you're grasping for something and then it, you, think, you think you may be able to grasp it and it goes a little higher and you grasp higher and you grasp higher. And as you elevate, you have a better perspective on life. As you elevate, you see more. As you elevate, you understand how great God's love is, but you keep grasping for it, grasping for it, you don't quite reach it because it's so supernatural. Our natural minds cannot fathom what it is. This is the part of the sermon where I'm not going to do a great job. And here's the reason why. Not that I've done a great job up till now. But the reason I know this is scripturally, I don't have the capability to describe God's love to you. I don't have enough knowledge I can't do it. The scripture says that. In this beautiful prayer that Paul writes in his letter to Ephesus, Ephesians chapter three, verse 18, he he says, his prayer is that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width, the height and the depth of God's love. And then verse 19 says, and to know the Messiah's love, that surpasses knowledge. This is the part where I said I'm limited. Surpasses knowledge. So you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, this is the depth of this message of love. You don't resist the temptation like, oh, this, this message isn't real deep, Like, like I'm not... Aaron's not sharing like some hidden truth from the scripture that we've never heard before. Some of you have read Lewis's book. Some of you maybe didn't me speak on this subject before. And it's like, okay, this is, this, is, this is nice to hear today. No, I want to tell you something. The power of, of understanding the unsearchable, the depth of God's love will, will change everything about your life. As you keep grasping, it'll elevate, elevate you to a proper standing of who God is. And when you begin to see that when you understand God's love it's the fullness of God within you. You're going to be more reflective of who God is when we choose to be more people of love. There is nothing more powerful than love. Listen to me. Nothing. The scripture says there is nothing greater than love. Love covers up our mistakes. Love covers up our bad theology. Love covers up our weaknesses. Love covers up our limitations. And and the more we love, the more we have him. The more fullness of love we have, the more fullness of him and who he is. So I want us to read 1 John 4, 7 and 8. It says this, Dear friends, let us love one another. Because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Something we need to meditate on and know and live. Let's stand together.